2: You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Greetings. This is an extremely special episode, and for a multitude of reasons, but for the first one being that I have an unbelievable guest, and that guest is Steve Von Till. He plays in a band called Neurosis. He also just recently released an incredible solo record called No Wilderness Deep Enough. I highly, highly encourage you to check it out. It is a beautiful, beautiful piece of work, and he actually just recently released his own collection of poems and lyrics called Harvest Man, 23 Untitled Poems and Collected Lyrics. You can get all that stuff on his website, which is just vauntill.org. But on top of that, this show is celebrating its eight-year anniversary, and actually, if I look back to the first episode that I posted of this particular podcast, which was called First World Problems, which shout out to my good friends Joey Cahill and Scott Arnold for walking along that journey. I posted that on in September of 2010. So that means I've been podcasting for almost to ten years. And it's uh it's it's a lot to like kind of, you know, look back at the all the people I've had on the show and all the support that I've been given, not only from you the listener, but advertisers and everybody that has, you know, believed in this thing or consumed in this thing. This thing. I just, um, it, words don't really do it justice. Like this has been able to give me so many different amazing things in my life that I, uh, never would have had if I didn't start, uh, you know, picking up a microphone and talking to people. And it's, uh, I, I'm, I, I don't know, humbled, whatever. I, I don't want to use stupid cliches, but I am just, I'm really, really appreciative of it. And, uh, thank you. If you are listening, if this is your very first episode, that's fine. If this is your 150th, that's even better. If this is your 400th, that's crazy, but I appreciate you listening. So please raise a glass to a toast to independent music, because that is what puts us here. That is what keeps us coming back. The DIY culture, punk, hardcore, all that stuff is just in our souls, in our DNA. And we, uh, we contribute to it. And this is the only way that I know how to, I mean, I, you know, played in bands and did all that other stuff, but this is what uh, keeps the flame alive, so to speak. So thank you very much as the consumer and listener of these interviews and these discussions. I really, really do appreciate it. And the fact that I could have someone like Steve Ontil on the show just, uh, you know, speaks to how far the show has come. So I'm just going to uh, dive right in. But first, you should email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And if your friends don't know about the show, tell them, please, because that is the best way to spread this particular show around. It's the word of mouth, you know. It's not podcast charts or it's not, uh, you know, social media promo. Like all of that stuff is cool and dandy. But when you are telling a friend that needs to listen to something, they will probably listen to you. So please do that. And uh, I hope you are all being safe. Like the world is just every day. It's like a new set of terrors. And I just try to, you know, put my head down, get through it the best that I can and hold on to the ones that I love. That's all that any of us can do. So I hope that that is uh, what you are doing. So, here is Steve, and like I said, please check out his solo record. Please check out his collection of poems and lyrics. It's just, uh, yeah, he's an incredibly thoughtful person, and I was really, 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 really excited to have him on. So, here we go. Eight years. Here's Steve Montel. me for a moment as I, uh, you know, experience or tell you about uh, an experience that I, I, I think you will uh, not only understand, but has probably been expressed to you <laughs> in many different uh, capacities in regards to your music, uh, you know, focus on neurosis, where, uh, you know, as a teen, like whatever, you know, I'm 39 years old. So like I started to get into like punk and hardcore, whatever, 14, 15. And, uh, you know, people showed me neurosis and I was like, OK, like I, I get it, but I don't get it. And then, um, I remember it was like, I think my junior year of high school where like I stayed home sick from school one day and, uh, I put in times of grace and all of a sudden it felt like the clouds lifted. Like I'd listened to the record before, but it just, all of a sudden it all kind of like hit at that particular moment. (laughs) Like the clouds parted and, you know, angels sang or whatever, but (laughs) the, all of your music has that undercurrent of like, you know, patience mixed with like layers of intricacies, Uh, where it's like, you know, you have to balance the idea of being approachable and yet substantial. Uh, I'm going to guess my experience is uh, not too dissimilar to many other people who have expressed like, oh, yeah, maybe I didn't get neurosis uh, or, you know, your solo music at one point, but then all of a sudden it just kind of like washed over me. Is that uh, accurate at all?
3: (laughs) I I would imagine so. I mean, I I have similar experiences with the music I like. I mean, you know, first time I heard like, I don't know, Joy Division or Black Flag, for example, I probably didn't get it. You know, I was, wasn't ready for it until I was in an emotional state or a, a level of maturity or just the right moment of life. Not that Black Flag necessarily requires maturity, but <laughs> I, I, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't open to it, you know, until the right moment. And so, I mean, we don't create this music to be liked or enjoyed. So the fact that anybody actually enjoys or finds uh, relates to our strange um often listener unfriendly uh self expression is is uh kind of amazing to me sometimes i mean you know we in, in many times in fact like in if we've ever considered the audience ever in creation it's usually um with uh some sort of <laughs> disregard Sure, like, like you know like oh that let's will definitely that let's see how will, we can that try their hurt. patience. <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You
2: know. Here's, here's here's this uh this 15 minute long song. Let's see if uh, yeah. let's see if we can make him leave it at at 8 or whatever. Right.
3: Yeah, evil laughter. Um, right, right. So yeah. but but most of the time yeah, it's it's just it's not easy listening, it's not friendly listening, it's not it's not party music. It's not stuff you jam in the car with your friends on your, you know, way to the liquor store or whatever. It it is like you said, maybe it's a moment where you were Feeling low, alone, you know, away from the day to day, and you and you needed something um, deeper and darker and heavier at that moment, you know, and that's kind of that's kind of always been the role I think that our music has played for for others. I mean, for us, it's the <clears throat> always been that drive of this is what we have to make. We felt emotionally and um. And, uh, uh, in a way, spiritually compelled to to do it, you know, to pull it from the ether or wherever the hell it comes from and translate, right. it, translate it into this strange rock music. <clears throat> right, right. Well, the notion that,
2: you know, there are very... There are bands that you can, and artists that you can reflect on that you know would be creating the thing that they're creating, regardless of the audience. And you know, you guys definitely typify that, where it's like you would be doing this if there was, you know, four people paying attention to it. Like that, just because that's part of your, you know, core DNA. That like you would be creating some version of what you are doing.
3: Yeah, for sure. And and there have been days where there were four four people. (laughs) Right,
2: right. Um, and this is also, forgive my, you know, uh, sp- specificity in this question but I uh, this was also a formative experience for me personally in regards to uh you know you guys playing Ozfest I, I, w- I did not attend that Ozfest but obviously they put out that VHS tape where they had a song from each band and like that was just so foundational I know for many people that I've spoken to and I found you guys being so interesting not only playing Ozfest with like you know Earth Crisis and you know I, I, as a straight edge hardcore kid like you know watching a band like Earth Crisis play in in front of a jägermeister banner was really funny too but <laughs> <laughs> i just remember when your footage came on it was uh, you know again i uh, the the clouds hadn't parted for me with uh with your music as of yet but i just was so compelled you know playing locust star <laughs> and then the idea that your footage was in black and white whereas no one else's was uh, I have to ask, was that a like deliberate choice on your guys 's end, or was that just something that you know the uh you know, the compilation producer of that v h s uh you know did just because they felt like they needed to differentiate you guys in some way
3: i can 't recall the specifics, but for us to play in the daytime was completely unheard of right at that time because part of our part of our deal was our psychedelic projections, which Nowadays is is a given that any big concert production is going to have video content and blah blah blah. But back then nobody had it. You know, maybe the butthole surfers had it, but because you had to do it with slide projectors and film, there wasn't high quality video projectors back then. It was super old school analog, so it was a huge compromise for us to perform in the first place. One in the daytime, and two without any way to. uh Represent uh, the visual aspect of what we were doing. We we were doing, in a sense, multimedia before that was, um, the thing that everybody does. Um, and so, I think that Sharon Osbourne might have offered uh, to have it treated as, uh, as that way to in order to. Um, give it a look that represented our vibe more. So it was right. it, it was definitely um it wasn't a, a demand on our part. It was definitely um a respectful gesture from their part if I remember correctly. Yeah.
2: No, th- I mean it makes sense cuz it definitely um it's you know, you guys stood out clearly because you, you know, did not, uh, you know, a square peg round hole scenario, <laughs> but just the fact that, you know, whatever a, uh, a person who was, you know, a fan of static X or whatever other band that was playing on there had to reckon with the fact that, wait, what is this footage in black and white? Like what, what's this band? And yeah, I just, I remember it being really impactful that like you couldn't kind of turn away because it was this, you know,
3: deeply different tone than the rest of them. Yeah. What a strange thing. I mean, some dude, right? Oz, some Ozfest VHS. I know. Is, and it's like, yeah, some
2: 25 years later, I can still close my eyes and remember that, you know, watching it with some my friends and be like, dude, what is this band? It feels like they're summoning, you know, Satan. <laughs> it just like, I don't know. It was so, yeah, it was so impactful, but I, I, I'm glad that you have some recollection of that. Um, Kind of putting the the focus on, you know, you as a person, you know, uh, that clearly you've been interviewed 5 million times, so I won't try to hit on many of the same notes that people have, but, you know, I know you were born and raised in Northern California, but I didn't know if it was Oakland in particular, or was there a, you know, another area? No, I
3: I was South Bay. I was, I was from San Jose, so I was an hour South. Got it. Which, uh, you know, it's probably changed over uh, the years. shit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, where I live now is is so different. But it was the South Bay when I I was born in '69. In so when I when I was a little kid, a Silicon Valley hadn't happened yet, and a lot of the South Bay, like if you were on the uh, southwestern side of the 101, um, it was a lot of agriculture still. You know, a lot sure. of a lot of uh, flower farms, apricot farms, almonds um trees and and a, a lot of open space and as um IBM apple um all the other tech companies that have you know came and went during that time blossomed the the south bay definitely changed radically all the open fields where my friends and I would go ride our bikes or play or whatever are now overrun with condos the the, the population explosion was crazy um, but um uh, but I definitely enjoyed it mean, it was an interesting place to be because you're you're with You're in shooting distance of San Francisco or Oakland or Berkeley without having to live there. You could get to the beach in a half an hour in Santa Cruz or, you know, you've got the mountains uh, just on the other side of us that you could go uh, mess around in. So uh, I thought it was a good place, good place to grow up. And of course, as soon as I became an adult, I got the hell out of there and and went to San Francisco and lived in the Mission District for seven years until I made my escape plan from the metropolis entirely. Sure.
2: (laughs) Right. Right. And I I think your description of that experience, uh, you know, I think is so reflective of, you know, kind of California at large, because, you know, like you said, you're half an hour from the mountains, you're half an hour from the beach, like you're within spitting distance to all these different, um, you know, experiences that sometimes people that get raised in different areas only have one. They're like, Oh yeah, I'm in the desert or I'm in the mountains and I have to drive hours in order to get the thing, (laughs) something different. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that experience kind of, you know, gives you, uh, the ability to uh, understand what it is you actually like about, you know, climate and location where you're like, Oh, I actually like the mountains more than I like the beach or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so what was your, I guess your family structure like growing up, like, you know, a mom and dad in the house, brother and sister, what was,
3: uh, that. Standard nuclear family. Yeah. Mom, dad, younger sister. uh Uh Um, Baseball sure yeah apple pie white picket fence all <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah you know I mean yeah. uh, <clears throat> my parents were both um, my dad was born in the East Coast uh, uh, and my uh, mother was born in the Midwest and they met in college in the Midwest and so they kind of continued uh, the westward migration until they hit the ocean you know, and they, sure. they moved out to California <clears throat> right before I was born. Um, and, uh, you know, the, my dad was, a uh, last of eight kids. My grandparents were born in 1900. Um, wow. so, um, it, it was pretty cool because we would go visit, uh, family. It would, nobody was local. We'd have to go to Iowa, to Michigan, uh, to New Jersey, you know, um, uh, my my father's parents were from Brooklyn, New York, and were both the ch- first generation children of immigrants. Um, and so there was there was definitely a lot of that kind of upward upward mobility going on, you know, like doing the best you can, but you got to work hard and do it for yourself, like. Uh, and uh, so, as my father, uh, he's an attorney, uh, finally about to retire. Um, we moved from a you know small tiny apartment you know in the middle of town to a small house and then to a big house up in the foothills and did that whole kind of uh, thing nice nice and was your was your mom staying home basically uh, raising you and your sister uh, until we got to high school and she was she was college educated then she kind of went back into it and then she also she just retired last month uh, as a university professor at San Jose State University where she, Very cool. she had been since the early nineties.
2: Very cool. And what sort of, uh, law did your dad practice? Uh, a little of everything. Yeah, I believe <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know. Cause sometimes it's, it's funny when I, you know, have these conversations with people, sometimes you kind of reflect where it's like, well, I don't, I know at one point they did this thing, but like they didn't, you know sometimes you just don't talk about like the intricacies of your job besides like oh yes this general description so you're like i don't know exactly
3: (laughs) yeah yeah
2: um and so, you know, as you were kind of growing up and, you know, finding your identity and like you said, you know, kind of within a sort of suburban yet also the fact that you, you know, could go out and roam the you know hills with your friends and, you know, BMX and all that other stuff. Uh, what sort of kid did you find yourself being, you know, were you, uh, you know, outgoing, reserved? Um, were you, you know, kind of a, a sports dude? Where did you find yourself?
3: Eventually in punk rock, but. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we <We're> get <good> there. <laughs> yeah, super shy. I was a super shy kid. If a teacher was calling on people, I, if they looked my direction, I would die inside a little bit. You know, like, I did not want to get called on. I did not want to talk in front of people. Um, <clears throat> which may seem ironic in the in the end, but I'm still very much that person. Um, and uh, I loved sports. Like I, I loved baseball and basketball. Uh, played baseball in little league. My dad was our coach, our little league coach, um, and I enjoyed hanging with my friends and my my teammates. You know, I, I did have close friends. We had, we had a kind of a neighborhood group of kids that was uh, pretty tight, and um, you know, we would all, all mess around and get into trouble, and well, not much trouble. We were pretty good kids. Sure, um, <laughs> sure. But yeah, riding bikes, playing baseball. That's cool. Um, I, I love
2: that I love that experience of what you're talking about when you find, you know, that, that neighborhood group of kids, whether it's, you know, even if it's just one or two people, but like that experience of palling around being like, all right, we'll meet at the park at, you know, 10 after
3: we have breakfast or whatever. And then what are we going to do that day? And then you just kind of figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. You know, bounce back and forth between each other's houses or you know tell each other's parents you're going to the other person's house so you don't have to be home at any time right right um and but rock and roll hit pretty early um both my parents listened to a lot of music my dad was more into like Kingston Trio um uh, John Denver Jim Croce uh folk singer type stuff he had had a band in in high school um of that style oh nice um and my mom listened to more like current kind of class. Well, it wasn't classic rock yet, uh, right? It was rock, 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 <laughs> rock radio. KS, KSJO, KOME, you know, Queen, Journey, Foreigner, um, that kind of stuff. Which which was all right at the time, but I was always looking for something heavier, you know. And um, and it was the time of the like cutout LPs where they'd clip the corner off the the sleeve and you you could pick it up for two bucks or whatever and and that's where i saw my first kiss record and as much as i i've i can't i just can't justify most of their music to this day uh i know some people can i don't know buzz from the melvins will never give up on kiss yeah never never Um, (laughs) and i'll listen to him play kiss uh sure but um most of it, I, I can't past the first early days. You know, there's not a whole lot of redeeming musical quality, but it did completely capture my imagination and me and those kids in the neighborhood, man, we would fucking air guitar kiss concerts where we each picked our person and, you know, imitated who you were going to be. or you, were you going to get on the second bunk of the bunk bed and be Peter Chris on the drum riser or, you know, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, And so that was kind of the gateway. And then, but a lot of my friends, like even in, I remember even in fourth grade, uh, which happens to be the grade I teach, we would, certain parents would drive us to the radio station so we could buy the stickers and buy the buttons. And there was, I remember there was a a DJ, I don't remember which of the two South Bay stations it was. But his name was Dennis Erectus, <laughs> and so good. And he had Dennis Erectus for President buttons. And so in fourth grade, I would have been wearing my Dennis Erectus for President button <laughs> on, on my down vest. Uh, you know, um, I love that. And uh, and we were just totally into it. We'd cut up the cut up the K O M E stickers because y- you could change the letters to say whatever you want. So we we were obsessed with ACDC, Ted Nugent, Kiss, uh, Led Zeppelin you know that was that was basically the wheelhouse right there um i didn't actually like led zeppelin until quite later in life but acdc ted nugent kiss it, that was it uh, un- until i discovered anything that the radio wasn't playing right, um, right yeah you know so so we listened to that a lot and we uh, in 1979 uh saw a fucking tv commercial for kiss playing live at the cow palace And I ran into that, mom, you know, I've got to go. And uh, we got tickets and the other moms in the neighborhood got tickets. And so maybe three moms and all the boys from the neighborhood, we all fucking went to that KISS concert at the Cow Palace in 1979. Dude, what what a
2: night. Like, that sounds so rad just to be able to be like, all right, I'm with my friends, like Mom's endorsing this. We get to see, you know, Pyro and all the dudes we've been imitating forever.
3: Oh, yeah. Pyro, blood, flying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Emerging out of the floor, you know, right. magically. Yeah. It, and it was, it was freaking incredible. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> and it just kind of blossomed from there. You know, from there, I, I was pretty much, pretty much hooked. You know, then I would, then I discovered, uh, I still enjoyed playing sports, but I was no longer—I was never—I never felt in the—I <clears throat> never felt a member of the jock society, I suppose. Sure. You know, like, I, w- I would be more into—probably that about that same period of time where I discovered reading mm-hmm. for, for pleasure, you yep. know? Um, I had one of those same kids in the neighborhood, man. In fact, I have the book sitting right here in front of me because I— I read it to my class every year, um, <clears throat> Tolkien's The Hobbit. Oh, I amazing. probably discovered in about, you know, fifth grade as well. And it still has my friend John's name in it written from back then when we were little. You could tell because so his name is all fucked up. And actually, I don't think he knows I have it. I borrowed it back then and never gave it. <laughs> so it's... It's like the longest borrow. It's missing the sleeve now. It's finally come out of the binding. It's falling apart. But I'm going to give a it back. I'm going to give it back to him in 13 years when I retire, and uh, and I can say that I read it for 33 years to kids. Now he yeah. can now he can have it back.
2: Right. You're like I think we got good use out of this. Yeah, I've,
3: <laughs> I've read this out loud 33 times. You can have it now,
2: dude. That's incredible. I and I I think it's you really hit the nail on the head when you kind of start to unlock things on, on your own where you feel like you have some agency, whether it's the music you listen to, the books that you read. And, uh, you know, you, cause obviously when you're in elementary school, you like, you don't have any choice. Like, you know, it's not like you're like, Oh, I, I think I'm going to do this today. I mean, yeah. So of course you can choose to do what you're, you're going to do with your friends, but you don't really have, uh, any other, things beyond what your parents are presenting to you. So you could be like, Oh yes, like I'm going to be reading this. I'm going to be listening to this band. So you just feel like you got that
3: control. Yeah, for sure. You know, making independent decisions. And I I remember my, you know, once my parents knew I was into music pretty early on, I always had a little turn, shitty turntable with the built-in speaker, but, but about that same time, I got a, I got a nice, um, tabletop cassette deck, a proper receiver, some decent speakers, Um, and I would, I would tape songs off the radio that I liked and and make tapes, you know? And then, um, I think I was probably about nine when my dad bought me my first guitar for Christmas. It was a big hollow body Moe's right. It didn't look heavy metal enough for me. So I was a little disappointed. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, but man, I wish I still had that guitar. What an idiot. Uh, I was, (laughs) I traded it for something pointy, but, um, um, it, I didn't take it seriously yet. I just kind of messed around a little bit, you know, like, sure. Try to just got like wet the whistle, so to speak. Yeah. A few chords here and there and, um, and whatnot. And I, I did, um, so I, yeah, I was simultaneously getting into, yeah, lots of di- different types of music. I can't remember the first time I really heard heavy metal, but it, was probably Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the gateway drug. Right. Um, to, the
2: more, to the stuff that you, to your, what you were saying earlier, to the stuff that obviously wasn't just presented to you on the radio.
3: Right. It might have been, there, w- there was a lot of things happening then simultaneously. There was MTV, it was just starting and they didn't have a whole lot of content. And so they played whatever you know, whatever they could get. And I think Iron Maiden knew this and there was an Iron Maiden live, but with their first singer, Paul Diano, uh, like an 81 right when the Killers album came out or so. So I'd, I would have been just turning 12. I think they broadcast the whole concert multiple times, uh, and then videos from it then. And so it was like Rothschild and Prowler and all these great heavy songs and instantly I was captured and I went and I found the album and then when I saw the album cover and I saw Eddie I was just like oh yeah that's <laughs> yeah that's, that's what I'm going for yeah that's mine there yep. it is
2: <laughs> that's it, it, I just like that uh that notion too of you know your parents being permissive to indulge your passions because you know that especially once and I'm sure you see this a lot of the times with your students and you know with uh, many of you know maybe your peers and their children where at the moment that a kid brings something into the house that is uh, a foreign object so to speak they don't know what to do with it. And sometimes they get scared and they're like, well, I don't know, we need to keep a watchful eye over that. But, you know, it, it sounds like your parents were, you know, generally speaking, pretty permissive with that.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Th- thank God they weren't conservative Christians. Um, right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> because I, I had those friends later on, you know, I, uh, whose parents were all up, all up in their ass about stuff and uh, really prevented them from doing stuff that if they would have been more open-minded was really freaking cool creative productive and yeah uh, as we would learn later on in diy punk rock more entrepreneurial more uh you know it, it wasn't uh whatever their assumptions were mm-hmm. you know
2: yeah this fr- like yeah <laughs> I, I love to, and I'm sure you had this experience when, you know, you started to, you know, like book shows, play in bands and, you know, put together seven inches demo tapes and stuff. You don't actually, you know, you're not vocalizing learning business experience or learning life experience. But, you know, when you show your, you know, parents or your family asks about those things that you're doing, they're kind of like, wait, what, what do you mean you booked a show in Oregon? Like, what? what? What are you talking about? And it's like, but and you're developing all these skills that you use, you know, I'm sure to this day that, it, you know, it, to your point, if a parent stops that, they won't have that, you know, e- even if it's a, you know, maybe fruitless endeavor in regards to, you know, playing a show in Portland in front of four people or whatever, uh, it's still learning
3: skills. Absolutely. Yeah. No, my parents were always supportive. Once, Once they kind of, once they realized that's where it was, that's where it was going. And as long as I wasn't a fuck up, you know, I never got busted. Sure. You know, not that I wasn't uh, around or <laughs> yeah. near things that were going on, or even perhaps part of it. I never got caught. So, sure. you know, right. they found out about the gigs that happened at their house uh, years after the fact. You know, once I was grown up and out of the house, the neighbor who. Talked the cops out of busting us a few times, you know, when we would charge five bucks for three bands and two kegs, you know, it, and, uh, That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. You're like, Hey, uh,
2: in, in, uh, just letting you guys know about five years ago, we put on about uh, five or six shows at the
4: house. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there, there was one where, uh, I, m- I might be skipping ahead too far here, but, uh, no, it's fine. there was one where, uh, they had kind of an arched leaded glass window in their great room in the front, and during the that particular party some shit got out of hand a little bit and some of that got broken out like several panels of the front window got broken out i'd had an argument with my the singer of my first band uh kind of a thrashy kind of dri meets the more metal thrash kind of thing going on at the time and Mm -hmm. and um and our drummer at the time was imitating the fight with a beer can in his hand and pre- pretended to punch, and landed straight on my tooth with the beer can, and knocked a tooth out. Oh, and before my parents got home, two days later, I had the window replaced and my tooth replaced. So, dude, that is really good, Steve. <laughs> I mean i i felt I felt pretty good about that. I mean that was that <laughs> yeah. took some serious organization and and like um uh, organi- figuring out my resources, like who do I know right yeah how who do I know a glass
4: guy? do I know
2: a tooth guy right
3: yeah so <laughs> so and so from little League, his dad owns the glass company Font- Fontaine glass on allen rock avenue, calling him up, get that done, and i I know where the dentist is, so i'm just'm right. just gonna drive over there you know? dude i love I love that yeah, it's just it's all
2: about uh, you know the hustle and kind of like well I I in order for me to keep doing this I need to keep this secret I got to keep this covered up still <laughs> problem solving I, I I use it every day band merch is my life and band merch is something that you need to go and find on rockabilly.com obviously it's one of our favorite supporters of this show and they've supported this show for the past two or three years and uh, it's it's awesome I love to have them along for the ride because For one, they give you a discount code, PC100Words, that gets you 15% off your order. And secondly, they have all authentic, high-quality band merch from so many bands, you can't even begin to reach the bottom of your searches on there. (laughs) They have over half a million items. That's 500,000 items from sweatshirts, scarves, you know, beanies, or they call them in Canada, toques. They've got so much stuff, and it's all an independently-owned run business independently owned and run business. I think that's a better way of saying it. But I just, I, I, it feels so good to support them uh, because they are, uh, they're doing, they're doing the Lord's work of getting band merch out to everybody that needs them. And then in turn, getting the bands paid for their legitimate non-bootleg merch. I love it. I love Rockabilia so much. So again, PC100words, that is the code you should use to support the show, support yourself and support Rockabilia Band merch, it's just, the, it's just the best, right? I mean, I, I've got like, Probably over 400 band shirts myself. So, contribute to the cause. Buy some band merch from Rockabilia. PC one hundred words, fifteen percent off.
4: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small. Like man, that parking space—it's always taken, and I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of you know this person that maybe you know is the most courteous and considerate.
2: And so did you, uh, I guess like care about school, you know, were you kind of, uh, you know, applying yourself getting, you know, B's and A's or were you kind of just like, I'm on cruise control. I don't really care about
3: this kind of between the two. I, I, luckily for me, most of it came naturally. Um, and so I could pretty much cruise control my way into decent grades. Um, once I got into high school and it got a bit tougher, My parents had to get used to the fact that there might be a couple C's in there if I didn't give a, give a crap, you know, but if, I mean, if the class was interesting, I was totally, you know, if the teacher and the class were engaging, I was all about it. I, I, you know, it, um, last year I had emailed my, my high school English teacher, um, Uh, I will say my parents did uh, our neighborhood in San Jose was a couple of blocks up off the East side and, and uh, it was a decent, nice neighborhood. And I loved all the kids I went to elementary school with. We, we didn't know things were different, you know, 10 blocks over in the barrio, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But it was a really big high school and uh, there was a lot of gang stuff going on between cowboys and cholos and, uh, a bunch of stuff that my parents were like, now that they were doing well and earning money, they, they were willing to get me across town into a private high school to get a better education and not have to deal with that kind of stuff, which um, <clears throat> I am also thankful for because it was small classes. You got to know your teachers. And uh, my parents were atheists and not religious at all, but it was a Catholic high school. Uh, Got it, which basically meant you had to go to some one b s class <laughs> right once a year. intro to religion yeah. in yeah. which I did happen to wear my black Sabbath hat and my upside down cross just because I wanted to be that guy um of course <laughs> what 's that in your shirt, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, nothing, yeah. don't worry about it. Yeah, they didn't send me home from that, but they sent me home when I started cutting the sleeves off my T-shirts. That was unacceptable. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. No one can see your upper arm. can wear a Sex Pistols T-shirt, but you can't cut the sleeves off. Um, <laughs> so um, I, this, this teacher, my high school English teacher, he had um, sat down with, uh, there, there was only a couple of us that were into it. There was a couple of us that were kind of metalheads and, and a couple others that were punks and a goth or two, right? And we all kind of glommed together just into a very small group like the Freaks. Sure. And um, started sharing all of our music, which was awesome because it was also happening around us. You know, it was the beginnings of that Bay Area uh, thrash scene happening where punk and metal were naturally merging. Uh, you had the DIY punk scene was blossoming. You know, the whole Gilman thing hadn't happened yet, but it was it was the precursors, you know? Lots of mm-hmm. people putting on shows everywhere. And and um, uh, so that this teacher, he sat down with us, and he told us about how he loved The Damned and Sex Pistols and how he traveled to England and hung out with The Damned and uh, just all this great stuff, how he recorded his own music in his own home studio. And I was like, what? You do what? what? Yeah, wow.
2: That's a that's an amazing thing for a teacher to sit down and be like, hey, guys, uh, you know, I, I may not like
3: the same stuff, but like, here's some foundational things. Right. And he, that blew my mind. And I I wrote to him, telling him how one appreciative I was that he was um, not only accepting, but supportive of the freaks. uh, Because we were also the ones reading the books and really into it. You know? Right. Contrary to what people would have thought. You know, we were the ones that were into um, the concepts he was talking about. And, um, And he lent me... His reel-to-reel four-track, so that I could learn how to record our band. And wow! It, yeah, I mean that. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you in a home studio right now. It's gotten a little more out of control than a four-track, but it's. I wouldn't be sitting in a room full of music gear and home recording devices, uh, if that hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. And, sure. And uh, there were some other teachers that were great. You know, we had. Uh, me and one of the guys from my band, our phys- our high school physics teacher, let us uh, walk on hot coals for our physics project, and I love that. <laughs> public school would have never done that, and no, and so uh, he wouldn't let us do it on school property for obvious reasons. But sure, but we filmed it with a Voivod soundtrack, and. Uh, and And, yeah, so that was, and he was supportive of us starting a fanzine, you know all, all of those things that we we wanted to do we I just felt like i I found a few adults who um they weren't necessarily like gurus or anything, but they just acknowledged it in a supportive manner, you know they got yeah, they got where you were coming
2: from right like i I like the fact, because I think, I mean, I'm sure you can attest to this, when you identify in a kid something that they're passionate about, that is something that, you know, maybe hasn't been passed down by their parents, like you feel like it's their own thing and they're taking ownership of it. If, you know, even if it's like, oh, I'm really into Minecraft, you're like, that's great. Like, (laughs) just dive into
3: that, you know, because you are passionate about it and that's exciting. For sure. For sure. So, so the fact that we were, we were validated by an adult, you know, was cool yeah
2: absolutely that's really cool and there were several um, others
3: others at that school that did the same thing you know i I could take my electric guitar every day, and the music teacher, even though I wasn't part of the band, would let me go use the amp in one of the practice rooms and you know stuff like that
2: yeah no that's beautiful i i love I love the description of that experience and I also like the uh idea too of you being able to learn from all of these different sources of musical touchstones because, you know, I mean, clearly it's like, you know, the journey that you've had musically has gone, you know, all over the place. I mean, you know, always under the guise of, of something that is, you know, uh, layered and dark and, you know, has a lot of texture, but the fact that you would be able to pull all of these disparate influences together to create, uh, you know, the headspace in which you are able to lean into it as opposed to, you know, just being a punk band and never looking up from that.
3: Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: You're like, well, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, it, it, cause I think that I, I just really am passionate about that notion of when you are, um, you know, learning from your peers in regards to that where it's like, Oh, uh, you know, someone may turn up their nose at, you know, whatever Joy division or throbbing gristle until it's presented in the right light to you. And you're like, Oh, okay, like, this is as cool as Slayer or whatever, you know? Like, you need those people to contextualize stuff for you. Otherwise, you know, you just think it's this dumb thing over there. For sure.
3: I mean, you know, like, I I still remember before, when that first Metallica record come out, I wasn't old enough to be part of that scene yet. I was only 13, you know? Um, Turning 14 in 1983. And I remember being in the Tower Records, flipping through the heavy metal section, the Imports, um, you know, I'm I'm looking at things at the cover and trying to judge, like, yeah, is this good, right? You, you know, I had already discovered Motorhead because thanks to that. So not only did MTV kind of open up that Iron Maiden gateway, but there was a thing on TV. I I don't have my timeline right. I don't, but there was a thing called Night Flight. Okay, and they played avant garde. Art films like weird ones, like uh, David Lynch, um, uh, all kinds of strange European stuff. They also played New Wave theater, okay, which uh, was a kind of public television punk rock show from L.A. Um, and they showed weird videos. So I first, uh, I hadn't quite you know, latched on to punk rock until I got to high school you know, and, and met the people that played me the records. But I remember that's where I probably first saw X or the dead Kennedys or, um, you know, all these different bands where it was planting that seed, like, Oh, okay. There's something weird and, right. and compelling out there beyond this kind of bloated arena rock shit. I'm been grown up on, you know? Yeah. And, um, so kind of simultaneously, like I remember some kind of biker looking guy, he was probably just a heavy metal guy older than me and wasn't a biker, but in my mind, he was like a crazy looking biker guy who looked over at me at that tower record store and handed sure. me kill all and goes, you need this. I love that. <laughs> you know, it's like a moment out of freaking high fidelity or something, you know? Uh, totally. And uh, I didn't question him, man. I'm like hammer, blood, kill all. Metallica look, sign tr- me up, turn it over Yeah, flying V's long hair. I'm, right. I'm in. <laughs> That's my checklist. Yeah. Sure.
2: We're yeah. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> and and no. so,
3: yeah. So I'd already had motorhead because, uh, but I think because of that night flight show, they had, they had played some, some motorhead videos. And also, uh, I think they did some episodes of the young ones as well, oh, which, which was that would make sense. heavy on the sure. ace of spades. Um, and so it was starting to take shape. And, and so kind of the, taking those suggestions, being in those right places at the right time, then getting to high school and cross-pollinating, you know, friends who are listening to The Cure versus ones that are listening to uh, the Bay Area thrash happening right at the moment, you know, or they didn't even have albums out. We'd have to drive up to Record Vault in San Francisco and buy bands demo tapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um with the punk of the day, you know, in the skate scene too, There's a lot of crossover with Thrasher magazine and the skate shops, all listening to adolescence and uh, fear and, um uh, all this different stuff. And, and, uh, everything just kind of grew from there. I, I, like certain moments stick out like that kill them all moment, the motorhead moment, the, um, I went and visited an old friend who we were friends when we were little kids, uh, in before that na- the neighborhood I lived in, I was describing earlier and um, we hadn't seen each other in a long time. And this kid pulls out X Los Angeles and we sit down and, and fucking listen to the whole thing. And I'm completely blown away. That's opening my mind, you know, a little more off the rock thing and, yeah, and uh, just all, all, and then, oh, well then there was the discharge moment where I'm kind of listening to the punk. My friends are listening to, I'm, I'm not, I haven't 100% bought in yet. I didn't know I wanted to make it,
0: you mm-hmm. know?
3: I was um, is still pretty heavy into Venom and and uh, Motorhead and Metallica and uh, on top of the older stuff. And then Discharge freaking, blew the just, doors open. Just crushed you. Oh, uh, yeah, because yeah. yeah, it had... Freaking huge guitars! Those are even bigger, you know. Right. Like that, that they, these aren't the crappy little, you know. Um, e, 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 like I, at the time, I probably would have been like, I don't want to listen to the Clash. Their guitars sound wimpy, right? You know, yeah. it was like sounds, sounds it's like now it sounds real tinny. Yeah, now right. it's one of my favorite things to listen to. But you know, <laughs> but yeah. back then I, I wanted big distorted fucking stacks, you know. And like, Discharge sounded like the sun was an amplifier smashing everything in its path like a right nuclear bomb and that's that's what the cover said and that's what the cover looked like and that these like four line lyrics of death and destruction and um just the black and white stark imagery and that crystallized it for me that's like okay this this is where i'm going is is i i've got to i've got to do art like this that's like kind of emotionally all encompassing and powerful and, and it took a while to get there, but uh, you know, that's what, that's what started you on the path
2: for sure. (laughs) Um, what was there any uh kind of assumption that you know you were going to uh, i guess follow, follow in your father's footsteps as far as you your career path and you know college and all that other stuff or did you i mean clearly you know music was uh, overtaking you at that point um but you know did you kind of have a
3: oh here's what i'm going to do for a career perspective not at all i had i had no direction with regards to career at all um, got it
2: did you go to college? I no?
3: did, and I, the okay. only reason I did is because that—that's what our family did. Yeah, it was what's expected, right? You know, that was expected, and so my first degree was in sociology, and I, I didn't plan on using that for anything. Um, once I was done, I was just back on tour. Right? <laughs> <You> no. <know? laughs> yeah. You're like, great! Now I got a piece of paper that yeah. says I'm smart. Okay, yeah. did it. You know, uh, <laughs> right. and the reason why I chose sociology was because I was getting interested in philosophy and and Jungian psychology and strange stuff like that, but also just heavily into political movements and, you know, all the all the stuff of the day and uh which is resonating heavy again right now uh around us. But I you know, I just wanted to read about the Black Panthers and about the American Indian movement and about the S D S and about the the sixties and and all the social movements and the revolutions and people wanting mm-hmm. to change stuff and, and all the trippy stuff, the Jungian psychology and archetypes and scream therapy. Like that, I just wanted to collage all that stuff, and sociology degree was where I could do it.
2: Right. You could explore all of those, uh, you know, quote unquote eccentricities that, uh, you know, w- would be kind of shuffled off to the side if you were to pursue, uh, you know, another
3: version of that degree. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, yeah well, it wasn't until years later where I actually, you know, quote, fell back and quote on my uh, college degree.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's the fallback plan, right? Yep. <laughs> you Get a piece of paper that says you're allowed to do the thing. Um, and, and something, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, belabor, you know, all of the, uh, you know, highs and lows of, uh, you know, neurosis is uh, upbringing and stuff like that. But um, something that I always found interesting, you know, about the you know moment in which you guys were you know clearly you know touring incessantly you know 300 plus days of the year and you know essentially existing in the music business even though you know you guys always had a you know a pretty strong distaste from it from what i can gather um but the you know once you guys kind of decided to get off that proverbial hamster wheel um and viewing it through the lens of the preservation of the band um, because, you know, most people, and I'm sure you can attest to this is they usually describe the experience of playing in a band as like, Oh, well, we'll just see how far this can go. But you guys realize that you couldn't go any further. Like you would break up and obviously not create music as the collective unit of, you know, what you were doing. Um, you know, but do you, I, I presume you can kind of see how easy it is that people can get caught up in that. Um, but I guess what, I mean, the question that's embarked in all of this is like, what helped you get off and like have that idea of we need to preserve the band. So we need to stop this.
3: Part of it, I think, goes back to our origins. The fact that we do come from the DIY punk scene Mm -hmm. meant that, I mean, fundamentally from the beginning, we never expected that this was something you do uh, for money. Sure, or that it's even possible to earn a living like that—that uh, that wasn't even in the cards. Um, I mean, our our first tours weren't even in proper clubs. You yeah, we playing it, squats. And yeah, right. squats, <laughs> basements. People's parents aren't home. Like, fucking, I was doing it. <laughs> yeah, you were doing <laughs> it at your house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and and um, you know, borrowing money to buy a van to get us you know, a third of way across the country before it breaks down to f- have to borrow money to buy an engine, you know, that that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and so I guess it was, the revelation was kind of knowing that um, there we were, was, I think times of grace had just come out. Um, we were on relapse in the States and we were on music for nations in, is that right? In, I think so. In, in Europe. Europe. Yeah. And so those were the, the you know, the kind of biggest machines we had had promoting us up to that point. And we thought, okay, we're just going to freaking go for it, you know? And, and, uh, you know, by this point, most of us had kids and uh, neurosis had always been family banned early on. There was children early on in our thing since, since the beginning. Um, but, you know, going from doing this kind of situation where you got to quit your job to go earn a few hundred bucks a month to support a family on, you know, we weren't in tour buses or anything. We were like fixing up old airport shuttles and welding our own bunks in there and stuff, you know, and, Mm -hmm. To try to make things worth touring in, and buying old U-Hauls for the gear, and and, sure. and um, we we were the only band like not in a bus on that whole Ozfest thing, but um, right, 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 you were bus chasing, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we were we were like out at like seven a.m. because it was too hot to sleep in the van. We didn't have AC, you know. Yep. So everyone's like, oh, those weirdos are like, <laughs> yeah, out, I can imagine yeah, yeah. doing push-ups yeah. at seven thirty in the morning and. Parking lot, Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, um, so it was really just kind of taking a look at the situation like, huh, like the, the way the music business seemed to work, or at least the way that we were told it was supposed to work is you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, you, you get an advance from this thing and throw it into the machine, get an advance from this thing and throw it into the machine. And, and all these things you're borrowing from are the places of your future uh, input. And so at a, a certain point we realized, okay, there's like financially five families. Uh, and we weren't splitting money up evenly. We were doing it according to what people's needs were trying to find what's, what's our bottom number. It takes for us to survive as, okay. as a business per month, you know? Mm-hmm, okay. Sure. You, yeah. You, you need that. You need the $2,000. You only need $600. Okay. You know, and, and we just realized that even doing things super slim, like, like we were. And, you know, our crew was always friends, you know, doing it for super cheap and, and, uh, just realized that we were just really just digging debt, e- even if it wasn't debt, uh, required to pay back. I mean, there was some, like, obviously, you know, we bought a new vehicle and, and, you know, we had a payment on that. And, and, um, uh, but, but we were, Making strange-ass, weird, psychedelic-heavy music and, you know, digging these holes that I didn't see we were ever going to get out of from that. Um, Sure. If we had continued. And besides that, aside from the financial aspect, we found ourselves, in in order to stay on the road, you you can't go do a headline show at the level we were playing back then in the same city twice a year. You know, so we were finding ourselves deciding to open for whoever was going to be out between October and December because we have to be out. Sure. And we found ourselves opening for situations that were less than savory. And, uh, you know, you look up one day and you're like, okay, I'm in a Monday night. I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah opening for a band I really don't enjoy. Uh, in the, what uh, what am I doing here? Yeah, what am I doing here? When we have kids at home, we're being shitty dads, we're being shitty husbands. And ultimately, we're not serving our art correctly, as you said. You know, this, this is when people are put or put themselves, they aren't put, they put themselves into positions where they start making these weird intellectual ideas about compromise in order to, quote, make it, end quote you know and to us we just had the revelation that to make it is we've already done it because we've stumbled across this extremely unique and powerful force that's bigger than us as individuals that this uh how many people get to make an original emotional powerful music like this you know how lucky are we and how horrible would it be to compromise it for money Or to get out of debt or to stay on the road or any any of that stuff. And so we basically kind of froze it and ran the other direction. Let's go get jobs we enjoy. Let's go find work we like. Let's go take care of our families uh, and make something stable and um, with more security so that we can still do this without compromise forever and you know and if we play our cards right we'll have more time available in the future as we figure it all out and you know sometimes that's worked out
2: right yeah i just think like i said the The practicality of that look is something that, uh, you know, most people kind of regardless of age, you know, because, you know, by that time you guys were, you know, ostensibly adults, uh, you know, even though I'm I'm sure you felt like children, (laughs) just that notion of being like, okay, I we want this thing to stick around for as long as humanly possible. So that is the focal point. And we want to actually have this holistic life, rather than you know, uh, putting out a seventh record about uh you know what touring is like on the road, you know, it's like that's that's not not, not
3: to mention the terror of we're one broken arm away from like going and asking for a job at Guitar Center, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's very, it's very, very, you true. know, like just, like what we're not building any sustainability towards any any future, and this is mm-hmm. a, as these times right now also make very clear, it's extremely fragile,
2: you know. Yep, and it can uh, go in
3: in an instant. Yeah, yeah. for sure. For,
2: It did, and you know, as you guys were kind of navigating the music business, you guys never had like management. I know you'd like worked with booking agents and people helping you. We did have
3: management at that time, I think, uh, okay, in the the mid to late 90s. And they were uh, punk rock guys coming up like us who just said, Hey, we'll be your manager. They were our booking agents, and uh, then they became our kind of uh, yeah, and then and through that process, even though it was friends and coming from the right place initially yeah we got in situations where things got weird and um yeah it's tough realize that you just you know what and i still i i will counsel friends this day everybody's different you know but i think there's no a band of our size or smaller even of, of what we ended up i think we even got more popular as we toured less um but even to where we are now, playing the venues we can play now, uh, if you can at all balance a checkbook, you know, and, and you're independent, you're not out there in the major label world where you have to have somebody fight for you. If you're if you're dealing with the right people and working at, you know, we have our own record label. Yeah, uh, right. W- uh, and, and, and even the people we, many of the people we did deal with, you know, weren't um, complete ripoffs. And so some there was some going on, but uh, probably unintentional. Uh, But, you know, if, I don't know, I I just don't feel like there's any reason to have management until you get into the industry itself. And we didn't want to be a part of the industry itself.
2: Yeah. You guys always kept it at arm's length. Yeah. And so yeah, that was as close as we
3: got was that, that like late nineties time where we were multiple labels on different sides of the ocean and, you know, and and then obviously we we ran away from that in multiple manners. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um,
2: a few last things I want to hit on before I let you go. Uh, one of them, you know, being your uh, publishing your first collection of poetry and lyrics. Um, to me, uh, you know, seems more vulnerable than even playing in a band. Uh, I am going to guess that it felt uh, m- different, but then also maybe similar of kind of putting together
3: a record. Or am I completely wrong in that statement? (laughs) It is similar in a way. I mean, and like, kind of like I, like where we started, right? Like, uh, shy kid, don't want to be called on, whatever, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, music has forced me to, and other situations in my my teaching career and everything, has forced me to uh, confront what is uncomfortable for the greater good of the art or the greater good of my students or whatever it is and so but there's always a little bit i mean if you don't pick up huge vibes of of contemplating self-doubt from (laughs) all of our music you know like (laughs) like, then you're kind of missing a big chunk of it because it's you know, it's always dealt with in my personal stuff and the group stuff is what is it like to be a thinking, feeling, emotional human being in this bizarre world? What are the existential questions of of our purpose here? What's our connection to nature, to each other, to ourselves, to our own minds, to our our own bodies? Um, uh, And when doing, you know, art that takes on those types of questions. I I think it's probably pretty natural to never think it's good enough to never think that it's going to be deep or heavy enough or, uh, emotional enough or pure enough. Um, and that brings up some pretty heavy kind of imposter syndrome, uh, feeling sometimes like who the hell am I to think that I'm worth worthy of putting out an album of, uh, pretty piano based songs with strings and, sure. you, you know, like, like where do yeah, I, where do I get off? Where do I yeah, get yeah. off on that? Yeah. Like, like who am I kidding? You know? Right. And, uh, and that happened like tenfold when I was like having the internal debate of, of putting the poetry out there, you know, like poetry is something I've written my entire adult life and it's basically just always lived and died in my own journals. Um, and mostly used as lyric fodder, like time to write lyrics, time to chop lines and words and phrases out of, out of old shit, uh, Mm. because I need something that has a long a sound I can hold on in about eight syllables, you know? (laughs) Sure. Uh, and so like lyrics have always been kind of a collage either. It's kind of listening to what words you hear suggested in the music but a lot of times those end up being sounds and you got to turn those sounds into words. And so sometimes looking at personal word banks and phrase banks helps you pull the words out. Like, okay, that's what it's saying. And you hammer it into some form that while poetically, it may be a collage of six different periods of life or philosophical wonderings or uh, uh, thought trains, uh, but it turns into something new. And these poems when I, I was kind of a self challenge of what if I just sat and I wrote these things that weren't going to be reduced to lyric fodder and that I would just let them live on their own. And who knows, maybe when I'm I've written a few um, in this new notebook, as opposed to all the old notebooks, which are now over here, you know, so I got this, sure, new, yeah. this new notebook, this new pen, and m- maybe with these, I will sit and just commit each piece until it's done and I don't know. Maybe I'll go to Kinkos and make a little chapbook or something, and sure, you know, sure. <clears throat> give them to friends or sell some uh, on the internet or whatever. And and that idea snowballed after I came up with twenty three poems I liked. And then I thought, okay, I maybe it's that same part of me that that like rises up against that self doubt. It's still there. It's I mean it's there to this day, but. um That same self-doubt never stopped me from taking my first band's demo tape recorded in high school to the skate shops and to the record shops and to the head shops and, you know, nervously asking the shop owner, hey, can I sell my demo tape here? You know, would you you guys let me leave some here and you can pay me if they sell, you know, and and the same thing that's like, hey, can I, I, me and my friends, we made this fanzine. We got interviews with local bands and international bands and, you know, can, can we sell this here? And so, I mean, I have, I run Neurot recordings here out of this barn where my studio is too, you know, it's like right over there, 15 feet away. And that's, that's an extension of that same thing. Like, you know, I, I I want to be a part of the underground music community. And part of that is you just do it yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm throwing poetry out there now and how, how can I make it worthwhile? How can I give people an in? Because let's you know, to be honest when, you know, in our kind of scene, the words I'm releasing a poetry book kind of choke in the throat before they even come out and you want to laugh at yourself. It's <laughs> right, so ridiculous right. sounding, you know, like, first of all, how many of our peers actually read or enjoy poetry? Uh, maybe more than we think, you know, Sure. to me, it's not weird, but, um, yeah but um so I thought okay if I tie it in with all my solo lyrics it'll give at least the people that like my solo records an end point, You know? Mm-hmm. And, a, and sure. get it some make it a nice tangible product, a hardcover thing, you know, and and um and uh also to make something a hardcover you need to print enough to be able to make it worthwhile, otherwise you'd have to sell the thing for fifty bucks, you know? So like, yeah. okay, if, if I can get my number high enough of where I think I might be able to get rid of them, I could, I could afford to do that and, and got uh, beautiful illustrations to kind of jump in there. And, and then as, as I was kind of researching what it would take to make them, um, I was discussing with a friend of mine, Duncan Barlow, who's been in lots of hardcore bands back in the day. Yeah. By the grace of God Endpoint. point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Guilt. Um, yep. and, uh, He is a creative writing professor at university of South Dakota. He's run his own independent, uh, publishing house, uh, with independent distribution. Now, now it's actually tied to the university of South Dakota. And as I was just picking his brain about, you know, where do you print books? I've printed a million record covers, you know, and distributed (laughs) a a lot of records, but where do you print books? Where's the best place? Where can I distribute these, you know? And in that conversation, um, at one point after sharing it with him, he's like, why don't I just, why don't I just publish it? You know? And, uh, as much as it was weird to give, um, uh, kind of a little bit of it away from the DIY thing, it, 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 again, kind of like those early professors in high school, it validated what I was doing. Yeah, absolutely.
2: and you're working with a person, I mean, similar to what you were talking about earlier in regards to like management and stuff like that, you're working with a person that has the same sensibilities. You know, this is a person who, you know, has come from the same DIY scene. So like they get it, you know, it's a different story of someone, you know, was like from Simon Schuster being like, <laughs> hey, Steve, I, I think we could do this. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about, dude?
3: Yeah. Barnes and Noble bargain counter. Yeah.
2: (laughs)
1: Yeah, no, exactly.
2: But but yeah, but it's it's exciting because, yeah, like the process of what you were doing is very similar to, you know, how people like you were talking about earlier, you know, putting out records and just being like, well, hey, where do you where do you do that thing? Like, is this actually, you know, tangible enough for me to be able to do this on my own? And once you kind of unlock that, you're like, oh, yeah, like I, I can do this, you know, whether or not you know, it, it, you know, flies off the shelves is, you know, a different story. That's not my problem, but I mean, it is your problem, but, <laughs>
3: yeah. but you get the point. <laughs> yeah. The invoice is, yeah. the invoice is my problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's partially Duncan's problem. So um, that's true. Split it. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and so, yeah, you know, and, and we made a really kind of unique and, uh, unique arrangement, which most people wouldn't be able to make because they don't come from our background. You know where I was like, hey, I, you know, you might only be able to move so many through your traditional book channels, and that's understandable because I have no, you know, a reputation there, and and who knows, you know, um, but uh, I know I can move a lot through, or not a lot, but I feel confident that I can move a certain number of people who would buy it along with my record, you know, and uh, absolutely, and so we kind of came up with this collaborative way of of him putting it out on his press but uh but me being able to kind of micromanage the input and 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 it was neat because it's not it's unorthodox and that that comes from i think our punk rock sensibilities of unorthodox ways of just finding a way to make it work
2: yep absolutely no it's a beautiful thing um two last things and then i promise i'll let you go the uh, no no worries man no worries i appreciate that um You know, clearly the band and, you know, everything that you have done has always been rooted in the DIY principles like we were talking about at certain points. And you've seen many other people that, you know, have kind of come up with you and played in bands and are are peers of yours that, uh, you know, tend to become disconnected with either the music or a lot of those DIY principles. Uh, You are not one of them. What, I guess, kind of keeps you connected to that? Is it just because you literally know no other way to operate? <laughs> or is it just the, the the feeling of that
3: is still, you know, what you're kind of focused on? I think it's the ethics. Sure. Um, I still 100% buy into those ethics. You know, I, I listen to people like Ian McKay or or Steve Albini talk about the absurdity of how they see the music industry, and we've seen it from the inside, man. You don't go on Ozfest or go open for Pantera and don't see that weird shit. Sure, you know. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> no, totally. And and, and it's nothing it, it, as depressing as like m- maybe it's fun for those people on the top, you know, or all the people that work with them. But if you're like the like low to mid level band in the f- Frickin', what a metal scene or like, it's just sad, you know, it's like really gross. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, uh, so it, it, it's like one, we, we saw it and we're disgusted. We had conversations, you know, af- after we had moved from alternative tentacles to relapse, you know, which was already kind of a compromise because we didn't see ourselves as a metal band and still don't. But, um, As we got weirder and weirder, you know, we realized, oh, we don't fit in anywhere anyway. So let's go where we're wanted. Um, And, um, you know, just watching, uh, well, there was, first of all, the kind of, like, when, uh, after Nirvana got signed and all the major labels started sniffing around everywhere, you know, um, there was some of that happening around uh, us a couple years later, you know. And um, we had meetings. Thank God none of them actually took us up on our crazy things. We were like, okay, if we're going to sell out, it's got to be like balls out. Like, you know, like. Right.
2: No, I, I literally, like, I mean, I, I worked at Century Media Records for about, I don't know, seven or eight years and I was A&R. And it was one of those things where it's like, there are certain bands that I, I just would straight up never talk to because I'm like, oh yeah, they're not interested in this mechanism. So I can't even imagine what guys that were working at major labels coming at you with, <laughs>
3: like, I just can't even imagine they, the conversation. literally use terms out of, out of movies. You know, like give you enough yeah. rope to hang yourself. <laughs> you got, like, you're like, what, what is that? What you're like, yeah, what is that? Mean? Lots of sports team references, you know, like <laughs> just all that stuff where you're just like vomiting it, it, it in your hands behind your back, like, oh my god, you know, and right. And we were playing with it in kind of a weird way, you know, we're like, hey, what if. What if we told them the idea that we, we we, only way we would do this is if they also financed our our ability to make like a film like Pink Floyd The Wall and to publish a book and a magazine and right you know like really take multimedia to another level
0: Like you know and
3: all that stuff and and, you know they probably just like got in their car left and like yeah (laughs) yeah you're like why why did why did we
2: meet these dudes at this random Chinese vegetarian place like okay (laughs) yeah oh you (laughs) were there yeah yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I just but I I could see it's like um you know Actually I think we had
3: long life veggie house delivered but
2: you know Oh there you go yeah <laughs> That's, and I just love the fact that you guys could control that sort of, you know, uh, narrative in regards to, because usually the whole wine and dine experience is like, oh, let's go to this rad steakhouse. And like, you know, you guys being who you are, it's just like, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to make this guy feel really, just a guy or a girl, make f- really feel uncomfortable and be, meet us on our level, so to speak. Yeah,
3: well, you know, I mean, and to be honest, I mean, we were young and impressionable. And if somebody might have offered the right thing, we may have jumped and that would have been a mistake. You know, so sure, I, I'm sure, glad sure. I'm glad that none of that actually did work out that way.
2: Right, right. Well, it, I mean, to your point, though, I think it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, this is a random comparison, but that band Anti-Flag, who, you know, it rooted in, you know, punk and, you know, very, you know, anti-capitalist. But like they signed to a major label, but like in their record you know in their record contract they had all of these provisions in regards to like not only the sort of you know business mechanics of getting their master rights back and all this other stuff but the actual record label had to donate a portion of the proceeds to you know all of these like radical left wing movements that they never would have done before and so it would have been interesting to see if you guys had something like that where like you said you're financing all of these multimedia projects from neurosis for a couple years and then all of a sudden they're like
3: wait we just lost a million dollars on these guys what the hell were we doing (laughs) yeah well they weren't that dumb after all so (laughs) but you know and some bands are built to survive that like i think about the melvins and they have such a unique they were able to do that and survive it because sure they never bought into anybody's shit about anything ever even in the independent underground diy scene you know they they would they would do it their own way and they were always the black sheep wherever they were so you know, I think they just laughed all the way to a, like a down payment on a house, probably with with uh, right. yeah. with their signing. You know, they didn't go do anything crazy or stupid. They, you know, and, and now they still to this day they get in a van and they pound the pavement. They play every city they can possibly get to, you know, and and pump out records all the time because that's what they love doing. And and uh, you know that that's it's on their own terms, absolutely. Yeah. And it's super inspiring, and I, I and I love that so much. And so. I, I'd like to hope that we've done uh, done our thing our own way on our own terms, which is which is a different version of that. You know, like like slow it down, make it more intentional. Um, you know, protect protect the art at all costs. Mm-hmm.
2: No, absolutely. I totally get that. Um and the last thing I want to hit on was the uh you know your role as a school teacher like you know when you moved to uh, you know Idaho and and you know threw yourself into uh you know elementary school teaching um the you know the pursuit of something that you're passionate about like I see this this cross line that happens with, you know, many people that are involved in independent music follow the the route of teaching because it mimics a lot of the same sort of feelings of sharing things that you're passionate about and, you know, sharing education. And all of that is kind of, you know, encompassed, obviously, in the profession of teaching, Um you know, was that uh, was that something that was always kind of in the back of your head? Like it would be cool to be a teacher one day, or was that something that kind of you know uh, just revealed itself? Sorta, of,
3: yeah, not not really classroom elementary teacher, but um, but when I when I was doing the kind of self reflection of okay, if we're not if we're not doing this touring band thing full time, what am I doing? And sure. uh, part of my brain went, I would love to work with kids, you know. Cause they're not uh, assholes yet um and uh, you know in my dream vision it was probably some sort of outdoor survival science camp in the redwoods or something you know which, sure. which those things exist and my friend john works in one of those kind of uh walden school i think is what it's called and um we went to college together and lots of shows as well and, and he, he got into that same way i think just inspired but at the same time um I was a new father, and I thought, okay, um, I want to find a career that's going to give me lots of free time to still be a musician and artist. I'd like to find a career that I'm inspired with, that I'm not going to dread going to. And so when I thought, okay, maybe I want to work with kids, uh, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I should mess with teaching, because I thought, you know, okay, a male... If I could be a male teacher in the primary grades, uh, I could pretty much go wherever I want to go, you know, because that's a rare thing. So if I could be kind of a, a well-respected teacher in early elementary, uh, I would have a lot more doors open to me. And, you know, teaching is only 180-something days a year. That's a lot of time to make music and run a record label, you know? Um, sure. I, well, it's never enough. It's actually... Right. Way too many yeah, yeah. way too many hats. But um but but supportive of that, you know, and um so that I just finished teaching my twentieth year of elementary school. I also thought it might make me a better father, you know, like learning to deal compassionately and and, and patience. Patience <laughs> yes. never thought that was one of my strong suits. Um, No,
2: that's, that's, I really, I appreciate you vocalizing that fact because I think it is, you know, it is a struggle for, uh, you know, I mean, I have a nine year old and I think that, that, that notion of patience, um, you know, you have to flex it in ways that you never even were prepared for before you had a child. And so you applying yourself. from your professional perspective to be like, hey, maybe this can flex this muscle a little bit more to where
3: I can bring it home and it'll benefit. Yeah, I mean, patience and like super chill and calm are also not adjectives I would have used as self-descriptors. Sure, Um, sure. So um, it kind of fell into place where the second I kind of looked into it, I, I subbed a little bit, I volunteered in a couple of, Uh, reading programs where I'd I'd go work and I saw some creative people doing some interesting things and I kind of enjoyed it. Um, I didn't know about the whole back. I mean, I had a four year degree in sociology, like I didn't have an education degree, but luckily at that time in California, there was laws in kindergarten through third grade that they would, you could only have 20 students in a class. It was 20 to one. Yep. And um, so, Areas uh, on the other side of the poverty line or in uh, neighborhoods with, with uh, varying issues, they were struggling to keep enough teachers interested uh, in elementary school in, in rough neighborhoods.
2: A- sure, and, you um,
3: could get your emergency credential. Right. So I joined up this—if you had a four-year degree, as long as it was a four-year college degree, it could be in anything. If you had a college degree in anything— you can be put in a classroom, you'll be given a mentor teacher, and you take uh, your education classes for two years at night and during summers. Um, so I jumped right in, and it was supernatural. Like I, I don't think we realize the amount of armor and uh, societal bullshit we put on to be out in the adult world. You know, obviously not with your friends and your bros and your your you know your loved ones, but there's a certain certain amount of uh, I don't know the hard outer shell you have to put out there in the world, you know, mm-hmm. to go exist in it. And you do not with kids because first of all they don't see it. <laughs> totally, they, they see right through it, and uh, right. and so really, you know, uh, you can. Be one hundred percent yourself, and they love it and respect it. Um, you know, people look at me on the street or whatever, and the thing—a tattooed, bearded guy—and you know, (laughs) like thinking, like, oh, like scary or whatever. And these kids know I'm not scary by any stretch of the imagination. You know, right? Um, you know, I'm on their team, right? And uh, well, they yeah, they they
2: look at you and they can easily they can ask those questions that most, you know, in most uh societal constructs would not be uh, you know, cool to ask or, or okay to ask. They'll be like, you know, hey Mr. Von Till, why why do why are you bald? Why do you have this long beard or <laughs> what? Like and you could just explain it and they're like, okay, cool, we're friends. Yeah, exactly.
3: Uh <laughs> yeah. and um and so yeah, it just turned out that it was really natural to me. I really enjoy it. I I learn super cliché, but I learn from them. And they teach me a lot about myself um i'm I'm good at delivering uh, curriculum. I'm also good at delivering curriculum in a way that I can relate to both ethically and uh you know feel like I'm giving them information that's useful you know and I use a lot of the d i y punk rock stuff like okay like let's we sing folk songs. And we, uh, now we record them. Now we, they sound pretty good. Now we're going to, I'm going to bring in some recording stuff. We're going to record it. Okay. now we're burning discs. Now we've got to design a cover. Okay. You guys get to work, uh, you know, and then we'll vote, vote on the best cover. then we're, then we're burning CDs, printing. And now we're still screening t-shirts because we need t-shirts. And, um, so, you know, hopefully maybe some punk rock bands have started. (laughs) Right. I, I think,
2: uh, I think I'm going to go to your class just because it would be really fun to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's like, Oh, all all, all these experiences that I've done for years to be able to be like, wait, I could do this in fourth grade too.
3: Wow. This is incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and just, um, being world traveled and bringing that experience into the classroom for rural Idaho kids, you know, who have a pretty, uh, some kids, you know, if their families are well-to-do or, or whatever, have, have had some travel. But a lot of them, you know, maybe their parents take them to Seattle on a wild hair or the Oregon right. coast or maybe Las Vegas is where their family goes on vacation. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of cultural touchstones in there. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, to bring my experience of different cultures, of different peoples, of different languages, uh, different art and music, like anytime there's a chance to go off on a tangent, You know, anything that's hinted to in books we're reading, we take it and we follow it and we go down all the rabbit holes for fun because that's how you learn, you know. And um, so because of that, there's probably more students that have in uh, in Idaho that have considered the indigenous perspective of what it was like when uh, European Americans first crossed the country and what it was like for those that were already here. And to have those conversations and to even role play it, or um the, there's probably quite a few more kids in North Idaho who know what Mongolian Tuvan throat singing is, <laughs> yeah too. Uh, because it was me- it was mentioned in a book, you know, yeah, uh, like, Mongolia. like let's, talk, let's talk
2: about this for twenty minutes, yeah,
3: like okay, <laughs> hey, check it out, I'm speaking of Mongolia, listen to this, <laughs> and uh. You know, just any experiences like that. Like, hey, Mr. Brontil, where were you last week? You know, I had to take some days off work. I went to Japan, you know, and, and, and here's some photos and here's some money, you know, from a right. different place and, and um and here's some of the things I saw. And so to be able to share that with young people and think it was it's also a way to like use those DIY punk rock ethics I grew up with of of, you know, don't wait for other people to hand you a life. That's not how it works. You know. You, we didn't. We didn't wait around for somebody to discover us. We went out and just did it, you know. Right. We just yeah. we booked our own tours. We, you know, um, toiled
2: in obscurity. R- yeah, right. And, right. And
3: and that's how it is in any job or career or whatever. You know, you you want to be a a great uh, furniture maker or bread baker here in in the local farmers' markets. You know, you you just go do it. You just you you go work on your craft and then you just throw it to the wind and take it out. And, um, and so to bring a little bit of that, a little bit of the kind of like my early young kind of activism stuff to it by being able to reframe discussions about, about, uh, history and society and, uh, in ways that, uh, are not pushing any sort of agenda, but just getting kids to think critically, you know?
2: Right. Offering, offering up a perspective. Cause I think that's That's ultimately what is, you know, that I mean, I personally and I know many, many people that have been impacted by independent music. That is what it offered to us. It offered us a different perspective, you know, like having this idea of, oh, wow, like, you know, maybe my, you know, upper middle class, you know, white suburb upbringing is different than, you know, the like you were talking about earlier, you know, different socioeconomic backgrounds and all this other stuff. It's like, oh, the world is much larger than that. And I think, you know, you being able to offer up those perspectives is incredibly foundational because it could set a kid off to be like, oh yes, like it's not just my world. It's all of this other stuff
3: that lives in it as well. I would hope so. I would hope so. And another, uh, it just kind of reminded me of like you know so I got this okay these DIY ethics this kind of entrepreneurial spirit this uh, critical thinking uh, and then there's also just the social service of you know I feel so extremely fortunate to have had the the privileged life that I've been able to le- live you know and, and not that it didn't take hard work but I, I had a lot of people reach out and help along the way whether it was labels offering to put out our records or booking agents willing to help us uh, not play only bedrooms uh, across the country and, and different things like, you know, and the, those teachers that were supportive. Uh, I heard a statement when I first was thinking about, uh, it was when I was volunteering for that reading program on the peninsula, this guy said something and, and the fact he used actually, I, I fact checked it recently. It turned out to not be a hundred percent true. Um, uh, but it's stuck in my brain and I'm, I'm still sure that there is a correlation, but basically the, the statement was that since prison, the prison industry had, has been privatized. Uh, one of the facts that that industry uses to figure out what their growth will need to be is how many kids are not reading at grade level by a certain age. You know, like I think the specific f- fact I heard was, you know, whatever percentage of kids aren't reading at grade level by the end of third grade, that's how many prison cells they might need in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, the specific fact, like I said, turned out to not be true, but I, I, I would, I would be shocked if there wasn't a correlation between, um, kids head headed towards a life of imprisonment and not being able to function at grade level you know, expectation yeah. by a certain age. And so, so part of that was, man, you know, I can teach kids to read. I know I can do that. Like, I, I need some, you know, need some pointers on how to do that at, at, in the beginning. But, uh, but that makes sense to me. And so if, if teach doing something simple and, you know, we often poo poo, uh, education and, you know, it's part of the, the man and it's part of the setup. And that is true. It is definitely part of the, uh, um,
2: the structure yeah, yeah, yeah part
3: of the structure you know and, and so I would hope that I would be a, uh, a different voice within that structure you know and that so if I if I can have any sort of positive impact of even just by teaching the standard curriculum well that uh, give a kid a shot you know who maybe has a lot of cards against them in life from whatever they come from or, or whatever just some kid a shot to not end up on that road towards being incarcerated or being part of the system in that way, you know, that's the, that's, that's the ass end of the system right there. Then, uh, then it would all be worth it. If I could know that maybe, maybe one kid avoided prison because of of something uh, that they might've gotten in school. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's
2: the whole notion of, you know, unintended consequences where it's like the, you know, you putting out art, you putting out you know uh, social service. Like you don't know the impact that that has on people. Um, you know, in the same way that you know a dude coming up to you, <laughs> giving you the Metallica record, like he does. You know, he he doesn't think about that. <laughs> you know, like, but it's it, it's immeasurable. Um, you know, when you that, that whole whatever. You know, a butterfly beats its wings on one side of the world. Like it, and it's when <clears throat> I think when people such as yourself express that notion, I think it's, you know, it's frankly, it's beautiful because that's the the connectivity of a person putting thought into it, of being like, oh yes, like I I can't put my finger on, you know, these 10 people that I've impacted, but I know in some capacity by me putting it out there, it probably will have an impact.
3: Yeah, just from my own experience, I I would think it would have to, you know, from exactly like you said, like the the guy with the freaking Metallica record, like, you know, what, like, (laughs) would I be sitting here right now in this place, in this time, uh, discussing with you, these things had not that happened. I mean, you know, it's the time machine paradox. You change one little thing and, uh, it's an entirely different reality.
2: Right. And then you're
3: marrying your mother, like, uh, in, you know, back to the future, (laughs) which I just had the misfortune of revisiting recently (laughs) with my youngest daughter who just graduated high school oh okay yeah. yeah yeah it's it's a you know i mean i number I, I one is just, okay number two sucks number two's rough it's real rough so we decided <laughs> to not go to number three after number two
2: see number three is kind of the most family friendly in my opinion just because it's so like you know whatever old west rambunctious like action adventure stuff but yeah two is like the darkest timeline and it's not enjoyable <laughs> except the hoverboard scene that's pretty cool <laughs> But, uh, Steve, thank you so much for hanging out. Honestly, really appreciate it. I'm, I, uh, yeah, I I just feel indebted to you in many different respects, but thank you for being such a cool dude and opening yourself up.
3: Yeah, man, my pleasure. And thanks for the thoughtful, thoughtful conversation. Much appreciated and, uh, putting good stuff out there in the universe.
2: What a doozy of a human being, right? I just, um, in reflecting, if you told me even like a year or two ago, they're like, hey, Steve Von Till is going to come onto your podcast, they'd be like, I don't know, man, that seems kind of weird. I don't know why you'd want to do that. But uh, yeah, just, just an incredible human being. And thank you very much to Steve. Thank you very much to Bailey, his publicist, for setting this up. It was funny because I actually told her at one point, I'm like, Yo, I'm straight up nervous about this. Like, is he is he cool? Do you think he'll enjoy this? Because ultimately, I don't want people to come on this thing that aren't going to enjoy it. Um, you know, you as a listener don't deserve that, and me as the interviewer <laughs> doesn't deserve that either. So, Steve was just so incredibly gracious, and I, I I I love him for that. So, next week we're trugging right along. Trugging is that even a word? Trucking right along. We have Tom Schlatter from You and I the assistant. And most recently, every scar has a story. He, I I ran across him many, many years ago and uh, we've been friends, but have fallen out of touch for gosh, I don't know, 10 plus years. But uh, when we reconnected on the podcast, it was like no time had uh, passed and it was really, really cool. So that's what we got next week. And again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you from the bottom of my stomach, my soul, wherever the bottom of something, I really, really do appreciate all your support. So until next week, please be safe, everybody.
4: The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?